Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wandering Bear podcast, the number one podcast on planet Earth. Proudly brought to you each and every week, well not each and every week, I can't say that, but proudly brought to you every time we do it, by the owners of Caffeine Gum Australia. Now Caffeine Gum is a batch tested caffeine supplement uh, that's chewing gum, comes in chewing gum form, it has 100 milligrams of caffeine, averages about 10 calories per piece, and it is one of the best um, caffeine supplements on the market. It's uh, been clinically tested, used by professional athletes all over Australia. It uh, absorbs through your mouth, not through your stomach, so you don't get any stomach issues just as you're going to work out. And uh, comes in three great flavors, in cinnamon, spearmint, and arctic mint. And we are doing free delivery all over Australia. So check it out at www.caffeinegumaustralia.com. Okay, today's guest needs very little introduction. He is a 1999-99 World Cup winning tight head prop for the Wallabies. He has been a Wallabies scrum coach on a number of occasions. He just recently was the Waratahs general manager. And uh, he's one of the best scrum coaches in the world. He's Andrew Blades. It was an honor, an absolute honor to sit down and talk to him, uh, pick his brain on scrums, and, and one of the things... I love most about doing this podcast is is some of the feedback that we're getting. Even though I haven't put one out for a while, I've been getting a number of emails, letters, and and maybe not letters, but but certainly emails or messages from people who've been appreciating it. So I really appreciate that. And this one's no different, guys. If you're interested in scrumging, which I know everyone is, absolutely everyone loves scrumging, uh, leadership, uh, how to get the most out of people, and to have a deeper understanding of one of the more misunderstood aspects of the game rugby and how to coach it, uh, then this is a podcast that you will certainly enjoy. So without further ado, please enjoy this podcast with Mr. Andrew Blades. All right, Bladesy, mate, thank you very much for doing this. I've I've been very excited to, to have you on all week. Um, I finally got the other side of the 99 World Cup winning scrum on the podcast. So, mate, firstly, how are you? Where are you in the world at the moment and what are you doing? Yeah, mate. Uh, so, yeah, big big life change. Um, uh, I've moved up to the Hunter Valley, bought a, bought a place in uh, in Pecolgan and uh, it's a sort of 25 acres with um, accommodation on it. So we've... Um, it's up and running and, uh, you know, we've been busy painting and, and uh, you know, gardening, getting all the stuff ready to go. And um, so it's up and going, a place called Billawong Moon up here and um, and in the middle of the vineyards and stuff. And uh, so so loving it. Um, so so that, that's full time for you now, just, just running Yeah, full time, yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, it's been super busy and, um, and, you know, really enjoying it. And then obviously just getting ready for the, the Christmas period with lots of people coming up. Um, nice and warm here at the moment. And uh, but we've got a, a nice little pool and stuff on the place for people, so uh, so it's been great. Yeah, so you're you're smack bang in the middle of wine country. Are you getting to explore much of the wineries while you're up there? Mate, it's uh, it's been a funny one. I've, I've um, you know a lot of the neighbours have wineries. We're, we're about the only one that doesn't. So um, visiting the neighbours is always very good. You get some nice wine and and run into a lot of rugby people up here. We've got a, a bloke across the road who um, you know used to be a lot involved with a lot of rugby in in Sydney, a bloke called Ian Napier and actually went to a first sort of barbecue with all the neighbours and and uh, ran into a Angus Scott, an old, old uh, you know, super rugby prop who, who uh, was at the Brumbies and 
and various and the force and stuff and and, uh, and I coached him when he was at the Brumbies younger so he ended up being my next door neighbour so it's funny like how how you sort of uh, you never get away from it. No, mate, it's, it follows you everywhere. And I saw they, they've got you doing some stuff with the wildfires as well. So you're keeping your hand in coaching a little bit while you're up there? Yeah, trying to get down there sort of once a month and uh, and give a hand to the, the coach there. The, uh, you know, you obviously did some great work there last year with the, the front rowers and um, obviously early season at the moment. A lot of blokes still not back back there, but had a had a first session there last night and really enjoyed it. No, it's a good bunch, mate. You'll you'll enjoy the community as, as much as some of the players up there. I can't speak highly enough of, of the club. Mate, let, let's let's get more into the bones of the podcast. So I've I've had a, a fair bit to do with your brother Cam. Yep. And it, it's, not, it's not very often that you get one wallaby prop in the family, let alone two wallaby props in the family. What what was it like growing up with Cam? How how did you guys help each other? How, how did you work out who was playing loose head and who was playing tight head? Yeah, as well? and, and what are your reflections on on you know, coming through the ranks together. It's a really good one. So it's one of four boys, and um, I was second oldest. Cam's the youngest. So Cam copped all the crap, you know, growing up. So he became the angry, serious one out of us. And, um, and you know, I was lucky I got to uh, choose position first, I guess, you know, being the older one. Um, so settled in at Tidehead, and, and he came through and obviously, um, you know, found his, found his pathway on the other side of the scrum. Uh, for us, it was great, like, growing up, you know, being able to work with each other. We were very competitive with each other, um, which I think really helped uh, me. We, I was lucky enough, you know, you, you came through um, Southern Districts at a time where there was a lot of strong props and it, and it really helps when you got that healthy competition at, at club level. Absolutely. I came through, I came through at um, Gordon, not only with good um, scrum coaching, I went to Alec Evans there in my first couple of years, but we had a lot of really good, Props there in uh, you know Mark Hartzler who was a who was a um, Wallaby at the time. Tony Daly was there for a few years. Cam and I, um, guy called Michael Spalding. We had lots of really good uh, props there, and so training was was great. It was super competitive. Um, you know, you learn a lot there. You made a lot of mistakes there, which which actually helped you helped you on the weekend. So I think that was a big thing. And Cam and I became very competitive. You know, even at Wallaby training. Um, blowing up fighting with each other you know when scrums collapse so um so and and Alec Evans was always uh, egging that on in the background so I think um for us that was great and and we we got to play one test together um you know which was awesome as well um probably you know my favorite test of all time I came off the bench cam started and um and getting to have that moment and 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 share your brother's uh you know um test debut was awesome how there's some interesting points in there. How, how important is being around good competition to develop front rowers? I, I look back on my career, and the hardest scrums I ever had were second grade playing for second grade versus first grade at training, because we had guys like Dan Palmer, Nick Henderson, Guy Shepherdson, James McCormack, just all guys that were were at the very least super rugby or higher level. And throughout my entire playing career, I never, I never scrummed harder than that. That was the the hardest for me. And I think obviously I never made it to the levels that those guys made it to. But jumping into the coaching arena, I still look back on those days as quite uh, formative for yeah, me. It's 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 so true. It's you need to learn those things and make your mistakes at training and and learn how to cope with with situations. Um, 
you know, I feel sorry for, for teams that, you know, you go to a, a club, there's no one there that you can compete against and, and you end up scrumming against the scrum machine the whole time. You know, you get an effect out of that, but you don't get the same learnings. So very lucky to come through that system. And as you said, like world-class front rowers you had there to, to go against, you learn so much from, from then. You know, you also had some fantastic hookers come through at that, that stage as well. Some really Absolutely. strong scrummaging back five players. So, you know, those those scrums at training would have been really competitive. And as you said, the, the, the great thing for me, especially scrumming against Cam all the time and how competitive we, we were, when you got into a super rugby game or a test match and something happened, you felt like you'd sort of seen it before and you knew how to adapt to it. So you didn't have to panic. You might have one crap scrum and then you then you adjust and you um and you get on with it. So I think those learnings are really, really, really important and um and getting young players to be able to scrum against players who are out of their class in a way at, at that point is is really beneficial. How important is the peer learning side of that? So obviously you had Alex Evans who was Alec Evans who was coaching and who is you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the godfathers of scrum coaching in this country. Yeah. You know, it's very few better, if anyone. But the the peer learning side of that, particularly for young front rowers, how important is having someone like, you know, Nick Henderson uh, scrumming against you, giving you pointers as opposed to the coach giving you feedback? I think it's really, really important because Alec was a great guy around mindset and, and mentality and all that sort of stuff, but he couldn't get in the scrum and feel whether you, whether your weight was good, whether you were pressuring him, you know, whether what effect you were having, and and you know if you release pressure at certain points of the scrum or or were affected by things. So you don't get that having that ability where players can do that. I mean, I think at the Waratahs last year, you know, we lost barely very early on in the season and you know, on that first game, and and we were under the the pump from a experience point of view, and you know, blooding players having their their debut. So having guys like Tet, Tetra Faulkner there, who's now, you know, doing some work with the Waratah scrum, who you could put into a scrum against guys and go, okay, you know, I want you to give feedback when you do something, let the player know, you know, when you've got him, you know, what's worked. So those sort of things are, are invaluable. And, and as a coach, I think you've got to try and create those situations where you can put those players in those learning Abilities where they get feedback from each other, and and getting a team to a point where they're willing to to help each other in that point, um, you know, is, is super important from my my perspective as a coach. Mate, well, we'll I want to talk a bit more about coaching. Obviously, that's a, that's something that I'm particularly interested in. But but I got to ask the the 11 year old boy has to ask with that still dwells within me. What what are your recollections of the 99 World Cup? Is there anything unusual that stands out for you? What What are your reflections on that period of your life? Obviously, a lot of success and 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 you know the the triumph at the end. But yeah, can you give us some insight looking back? Yeah, I guess um, weirdly, I, I suppose when I think back of it, I think probably two years before ninety ninety seven when um you know uh, I was sort of in and out of the the team and um and we were struggling a fair bit and. When the Rod McQueen sort of came in and we made that move to having that base at Caloundra, um, that two-year lead-in to the World Cup was incredible, like living out of each other's pockets, getting that cohesion, just having those casual conversations, you know, rather than force things at training. Um, 
I think we got to that World Cup with a real affinity and a real understanding of of each other, and that probably was the defining point from my point of view. Yeah. So you know, we got into that, um, and I think that that probably reflected in the semi final, which is for me the toughest, probably the toughest game of, of footy that I've played. I was having having some issues at that point with with a nerve in my um, left arm, which was my binding arm, and um, we'd ended up sewing a seatbelt to the to the shorts of um, Foles' shorts so that I could hook my yeah. arm in it, into it because I couldn't bind. Um, and, uh, and but getting into that game. In the lead up in that week, our our guys that didn't get picked, like we had really experienced um, squad, and the training session we had against them on the Wednesday, the opposed one, was one of the hardest training sessions I've done. I think they scored about eight or nine tries against us, but we got into that game against South Africa. It went into extra time, so you know we played a hundred minutes, and it felt like you'd played the game before. It, it really, you got in that comfort zone where you, you know, there was nothing there that you hadn't seen, um, you know, uh, my uh, my ass was hanging out, I sort of played the whole game, that one, and, and had Os Durant for the first, you know, at 135 for the first 80, and then uh, Ollie LaRue at 135 for the for the, the last bloody bit. Bloody hell. <laughs> yeah, I know. So it was, um, you know, but it was, we were really comfortable in, in everything that went in that, in that, um, in that game, and it just felt, felt like we'd been so well prepared by what, that whole squad did um, for us. So, so that was for me the the driving moment was that, and then that satisfaction. Now it was it was a real feeling after the thing sitting in the change room. It was that just sitting around with your mates, you know, that you spent all this time with, and and realizing that all those things had paid off. It was just a a massive relief and and a real feeling. But for me, the idea, yeah, I think that defining moment was that semi final and just that. You know when we got pushed by by the side that was probably the most informed there. That um, you know we just were in that comfort zone because we'd been so well prepared by the by our mate by our mates that we'd spent all that time with. I could, I could only imagine how good that beer after that game would have been sitting in the change rooms. There would exactly. be none none better. Mate, yeah. what what was it like for you jumping from playing into coaching? Did you have any difficulties when you first started, or was it a pretty seamless transition for you? Look, the initial. Bits were pretty seamless. Like I was very lucky, you know, that I got I got sort of entered into coaching not in a head coaching role in a in a real technical side of things. So so initially just as a scrum technical side. So helped a little bit with the Wallabies in the in the British in the back end of the British Lions series. Um, went down to the Brumbies. Um, spent a couple of years there doing their their scrum technical um, work with them. That was a real comfort zone thing for me where I knew a lot of the players, I played against them, I could still jump in and scrum against them and um, and just felt like a natural thing. You know, uh, the body wasn't working to run around the field at, at the moment, but I could still, you know, still, yeah. still be in, in that situation there. So that that for me was a really good transition. I think that the hard bit was taking the next step. Um, I went to England um, as a forwards coach uh, for Newcastle Falcons, um, went there, was there for three weeks, and the owner sacked the head coach and and didn't replace him, and just said, "Okay, on off you go." So you um, you became the head coach just by default. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we had a guy Rob Andrew who obviously was you know very well known. He was the director of rugby, so he helped out a bit when he could um, be on the field. But for me, that was a massive step up and. 
I learned a lot in those first two years. Um, and I think the big mistakes I made there initially, the biggest thing was I worked my ring off like, you know, it was a 40-game season for those guys at that stage. And and I think I tried to pass on every bit of information I had about the opposition and do all that stuff, um, you know, rather than focus on the things that make, make a difference. Um, and I think that was the biggest thing I learned in those first two years um, is an evolution of, of me coaching was was to focus on the basics um, and focus on the things that were going to make a difference. And, and, yeah, it was all right for me to know everything about the opposition that was coming up and what might work against them, but but just focusing on what each player knew, needed to do to do, get their job done um, and be content with holding information to myself that others didn't need to know rather than feeling, oh, shit, I've told everyone how, how hard I worked. I think that was the that was the biggest change for me was was getting that click across to Have you seen that mistake a lot with young coaches? Yes, yeah, a lot. You know, you see the meeting fests and the, you know, the 45 minute meetings where they go over every play that the opposition's ever ever played and and um and you know, go through that and and players switch off. Um the biggest thing you also see is is coaches and it's a natural thing, you know. Coaches now, they, a lot of them are getting paid, and they're under pressure um, for performance, and they and they try and take con- total control of all the information and all the calling and everything. Um, and unfortunately, what they realise after a while is the players don't take ownership then of of the the victories and the other things. You know, they'd be happy to take ownership of the victories, but probably when things aren't going wrong, they they one don't feel confident to to play and adapt on the field and they probably don't understand why they're doing what they're doing. So for me, that was the biggest learning thing. And that's the biggest thing you see with coaches who are enthusiastic. They're working their rings off and they, they've got, they find all this information and they want to pass it on. Uh, going back to that Newcastle period, did you have anyone to help you through that time in terms of mentors or someone to bounce ideas off? Like, yeah. yeah. Did Look, you I have had- anyone? I had Rob Andrew, but he was a very old school, you know, coach at that stage um, and, and probably not that experienced as an actual coach. Um, I guess there were other guys over there. Um, Rod Kafer was with Leicester for a while. We we used to catch up and chat about things. Um, I learned a lot around from Rod around, um, around how he was assessing opposition and the information he was giving. Um, funnily enough, at the same time, Michael Foley was – in the same situation as me at Bath, and um, and he was over there, and he and he had a really tough first year there, um, you know, probably similar situation to me, learning on the run, and we had some great conversations. He actually had John Connolly, you know, Knuckles, uh, who we both played under. I'd had a year up there in Queensland with, um, and we both played under underneath. And and Foles said to me, "Oh, Knuckles came, watched his first three coaching sessions, and then." got him behind, you know, sat down with him and said, had these two pages of information that Foles had and said, pick three things out of that and only talk about those three things for the rest of the week. Forget about all the rest of it. And I think, um, and and he said he once he took that on he, and he took that philosophy on, you know, they, they things really changed there for him. 
Um, so little things like that, you know, really helped me just, I guess, talking to those guys, um, you know, at that time and and learning off each other. And um, and I was lucky enough, our captain there was Johnny Wilkinson. So he was coming in and out of the England squad and, and being able to sit down with, with him and talk about um, stuff. And then we had a few few experienced internationals come from from other places. So we had a couple of guys come from New Zealand, uh, a guy called Mark Mayhoffler, who was an all-black centre. Absolutely. Uh, we ended up becoming really great mates. He was a really good I, older guy to bounce ideas off. And then Mark Andrews come from South Africa, just finished, you know, um, with with the South African side and um, and come over and play play with us and bounce ideas off him and then sort of try and take what worked for you out of those things. So, yeah, definitely had some really good learning experiences when I was there. I, yeah, the, the reason I ask is because I, I think it's pretty important for – certainly I, I'm a young coach and having guys to bounce ideas off has been just invaluable for me. And yeah. I can imagine you during that period, which would have been uh, – I can only imagine how stressful that would have been to be able to share experience with foals or to have someone like John Conley just to – just to give you a couple of pointers or to help you clarify your thinking would have been invaluable. Yeah, it is because, you know, I, at that point there, it was promotion relegation. Um, so when I took over coaching the team, we were we were six points off last um, and uh, and looking, you know, relegation square in the face in, in my first, you know, coaching experience. And... Um, and managed to claw our way out of that with about three games to go in the season, you know, be be safe. Um, and um, and so, yeah, learning that that thing, being under that pressure and, and trying to sort of learn at the same time was uh, was incredible. So having, having those people to bounce ideas off, you know, even though we were competing against each other, we were mates and we'd come through a system, so, you, you know, you're bouncing ideas off each other and... Um, and you know we actually ended up playing foals in the last game of the season, and and if we'd beaten them, they would have got relegated. Um, so it was a weird situation. We didn't deliberately lose that, but we played crap. So yeah. so we saved them from relegation that year. Mate, uh, something you mentioned before is about the importance of having players who are leading on the field, or you know, from yeah. coaches that coach too much, you, you sort of lose the leadership on the field. Uh, how? How can we as coaches help create those leaders? Have you have you had any tactics? Are there any strategies that you've used to create, you know, a scrum leader at the Waratahs? Or yeah. can you talk well, about that a little bit? Yeah, I think there's two things for that. Um, I didn't realize it until many years after I'd finished playing that um, when Rod McQueen came and took over as as the Wallabies coach, you know, he had a lot of players there with high rugby IQ, and um, and he made us sit down, you know, we'd always been talked at by coaches or just, you know, there wasn't that much rugby analysis. There wasn't that much video. There wasn't really analysis systems in place at that time. So we'd really gotten past in the past by teams not knowing what anything about you and you'd turn up and you'd just play stuff. And it was just, it was just getting to that starting point of where you were actually watching the opposition, the opposition were watching you. He came up with a really simple thing of of let's start from a point that we're the opposition watching us. What would you do against us? And let's start our thinking from that point of view. And then he, you know, his first thing he started was an old school like business SWOT analysis. 
Yeah. And um, and we all thought it was a load of crap. You know, we didn't understand why, you know, why we'd have to sit through this. And we thought, oh, Rod, you know, Rod doesn't understand rugby, so he's enough. So, he, you know, he's getting us to do all these things. You know, there was all that talk in the background. We got on with it and did it. And um, and we so what what he basically did to the team was get everyone to think through the game, get everyone to get on the same page, understand why we were going into a game with a certain tactics, thinking the opposition would play a certain way, but also understanding that if they didn't play that way, that we knew why we were playing that way and could easily adapt on the field. And so we we took great, as a group, took great ownership of the feeling that we were in control of what we were doing on the on the park. Um, Again, at the time, a lot of the players went, oh, you know, Rod's just trying to get us to do the work for him. But, you know, 10 years down the line, when you get into coaching or business and stuff yourself, you realise actually what he did was enable create a, a simple system that enabled us to have a way that we thought about the game and came up with reasons that, that did those things. So for me, that was a really important way. It's bloody hard as a coach when you're responsible for results to to have the trust to do that yourself and, and to give that away. So definitely it's something that um, it took me a long time. I, you know, so when I went to Newcastle, I, I was guilty of doing too much myself and it took me probably to halfway through my second year there to start getting players to actually take responsibility for, for things. Um, I was very lucky when I came back and worked with the Wallabies that I had some guys like Nathan Sharp and stuff there that were real students of the game and, and they would look at, you know, things like the line out and stuff and really study the opposition. So, they, you know, was facilitating them and, and finding the information for them to make it easy for them, but really just trying to lead them on the way of of having those things, you know, where they had prepped in their mind, you know, okay, this is the way, this is a couple of ways the opposition might defend. These are the calls that are going to use against them. Here's, so they're not trying to think on the field. They've already done that processing off the field. So... For me, that became super important, um, having those leaders. Sometimes you don't have a lot of them developed, so it is a longer thing to develop them. I, I was just going to ask, <clears throat> pardon me, just in, in regards to scrummaging, how, how would you help to, how would you begin to create some leadership around scrummaging? Because it's yeah. something, particularly with this generation, I mean, there's there's some smart guys around, but it's it's a lot younger than perhaps back in the day where you had your Nathan Sharps who were in around the yeah. team who could bring the the IQ up. But, but yeah, what, what sort of strategies do you use to, to create leaders or to increase rugby IQ around scrummaging? I guess if we took, say, if I took an example of um, the couple of years I had at the Waratahs recently, um, I went into the situation, um, the feedback I had when I started was they want you to really lead lead it you know they've had to fend for themselves for a couple of years to a degree um so they want you to lead it initially and then slowly give back the leadership to them so that was a pretty easy way so i just went in started working with the guys um i think my initial thing was just trying to see what made the players tick see who the natural leaders were um in the group um and then from that point um initially start leadership by asking them to to um scrum against each other and then come up and you know at the end of the set of scrums talk about 
what worked and what didn't with what the opposition did against them and, and have those little chats around around what they thought, you know, uh, the player did that, that was effective. Um, so that was the initial bit. And then I worked out sort of after a while who the natural sort of leaders were. There were guys that wanted to take responsibility. And, and you get that some players who are that want to talk, but, you know, talking might be masking the fact that they're they're lacking a bit of confidence. But you also get the other ones that, that, um, that say the not the right things, but say things that that are about what's actually going to help on the field. So, yeah, just trying to find those guys. Um, I think the most difficult thing um, I have is, is you have some of the Pacific Islander guys that you have in a group. Um, you know, they have that great respect for their elder, more um, experienced players, and sometimes they won't give an opinion. So, and it can be quite hard to get them to to come out of their shell and, and often they've got very good IQ, but they're holding it yeah. internally yeah. And, and they're worried about what people will think about them if they come out and say something. So so trying to get them to come out of their shell because I think the big thing is, say, if you've got a, a player as a hooker um, and you get into a situation where something's happened, a team's hitting and shifting left or doing something on you and, the hooker's got to take control. If the hooker's not prepared to talk to his props and then the props start thinking, oh, you know, um, they start working on their own and, and you get that breakdown of of the um, the core of the scrum. I think, yeah, trying to trying to get those players to come out of their shell and realise that that's, if everyone's on the same page, it's not really a mistake. Yeah, um, it's yeah, just yeah. making sure that you come up with a, Away and and I think um, what we tried to do as a group there, I guess as an example, was was work through issues that we might have. That may be a team on the on the bind taking that shift left, a team um, trying to isolate our tight head, a team um, you know with a very strong loose head who might be really stepping around the corner, a team who might be playing around on the bind with varying pressure, trying to milk free kicks from the referee. And just go, okay, if we, if we hit that situation, what's our go-to? If we hit that situation, what's our go-to? And we, we can go straight to those situations. And having the players work through those scenarios and come up with a, a solution they're happy with and that they've worked at training and, and they're comfortable that it, that they were able to solve that to a degree, um, I think was important as well. So, so would you do that just as front rowers and you go, oh, guys, we're, we're getting uh, this front row to offset to the left and drive at a eleven o'clock angle. Yeah. yeah. What are you guys going to do to fix it? Yeah. Would, would you get that generally just as a front row group and uh, and do that? I mean, you didn't want the back five to to start thinking that they were, you know, yeah. doing things. You want them to stay connected. I think the the big parts of around back row stuff were more what what things are going to make a a difference, and that might be okay if you you know if you're the right hand flanker and you see that opposition loose loose head shifting left and changing angle what do you do to help your tight head in that situation um what information might a nine or a or a flanker give you know ask questions the right questions to a referee to point out a hinging prop or or a prop that's changing bind or something like that you know just key key things that they can say to 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 um you know without Pissing the referee off, yeah. Um, but just to to make a a point, um, and then around the 
for me, I think a neglected part of scrummaging is that is that um, feed strike um, delivery combination skill set. Um, you know, most of the time you split backs and forwards to train at the same time and the backs don't want their half backs to, to come across, you know, and, and the forwards want everyone there. And, and you know, so it's, uh, it's often hard to get that time, you know, where they spend getting those quality combinations. So for me, super important, um, you know, those, those combinations are there and, and, and that, yeah, you don't, the back five don't need to know all of that other detail. They just need to know those things that are important to them. This is probably a long-winded question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How do you begin to build a dominant scrum? I, I think from what I've seen, there's a bunch of teams that can hit and hold, win their own ball nice and clean. I don't think that's that difficult to achieve now because a lot of teams are doing it. And from what I've seen, the way referees are refereeing the scrum, particularly in the World Cup, even teams that are getting dominance, the ref's still saying to use it. So it... It's you know I think that's changed things a little bit, but to build a dominant scrum, how would you attack it? How do you begin? I guess that's a really good point. So I, I try and look at sort of um, probably three key key things that I want to want to try and um, evaluate around the team and see where they're up to, and and probably the first one's mindset. I want to see that the players who are going to be involved in that have got the right mindset. That um, that on back fives going to fight until the ball's out of the scrum um, each time. That that you know um, that they're not going to hit and be so panicky about you know missing the timing of their of their release in defence that they're, they're not actually watching the ball through the scrum. So it's giving them okay. So if you're the if you're the right hand flanker and you know that you might be playing an eight and a nine that like to run, um, especially close to the line. How can I get you to concentrate on the scrum long enough? And it might just be giving them the cues that, you know, if, you, if you're taking your shoulder off and looking over the top of the scrum, you're either going to get penalised for being offside and and um, disengaged early or, or our scrum's going to get shafted. Yeah. Watch the ball through the scrum, you know, and you're going to see that ball at the feet and when the halfback gets his hands on it or the eight gets his hands on it, you're going to get your timing off that. So in the meantime, you, you stay there. So it's that... I want to see one that they've got a mindset around scrummaging um, that you're not always going to be comfortable. You know, a lot of props want to feel comfortable and, they, and they'll and they shift their position if they're not comfortable. And sometimes you just got to be in uncomfortable positions to make the scrum work. Um, so there's that's one thing. The second thing is to build that skill set to allow them that. So, you know, to show them shape, to show them a, a pushing plane that works, um, you know, feet adjustment, when to do that um, at the right time, all those things that make up the skill set of being a prop, you know, how to bind, how to get yourself in a position where you don't put yourself under pressure. And then the third one is making sure that they're, they've got the physical capability of doing those things. Um, so you want players that are going to train consistently. Um, you know, you get a lot of players that go real hard, break down, fall apart, go real hard, break down, fall apart, and they don't get that consistency of training. I just want players that are going to get there, build, 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 and be there. You know, we had one season when I was with the Waratahs that we couldn't do a live scrum until mid-January between injuries from Wallaby stuff and, and um, you know, guys 
busting ass, doing stuff before they were ready, and um, and we just didn't build that consistency into it. So I think they're the things there, and then on the back of that, you can build tactics. You know, uh, it's easy to build tactics when you've got a, a good base. You know, when when you've got players that can be strong, low, and square. Um, you know, and they've got an ability to engage consistently into a strong position. It, once they've got that, you can build stuff on the top of it, but there's no point building tactics there. Um, as to your second part, part of your question around that, how do you build that dominant scrum, I agree with you that I think one area referees have gotten better is they didn't want to reward that scrum that just gets in, um, plays a quick channel to number eight and then just walks left creates a picture of movement and expects the referee to put an arm up because, you know, they, they, they're they pretending that they've created dominance just by shifting left and and hopefully getting the opposition loose head to change angle because he's trying to chase you across and you get that picture. So I think they've been better off at um, wanting that tight head to actually shift forward to create that movement first. Um mm-hmm not wanting the the hooker just to stand up and put his hands in the air and go, oh, look, you know, I've been dominant. So I think they are getting better at recognising that. So for me, um, I just think, you know, getting our mentality that we that we um, set up around our hooker and tight head really put a lot of pressure through that position there. Set our loose head up where he can be in front and actually engage with his opposition tight head, um, you know, not be hanging out the side and just or tucking, like in, tucking in behind. Yeah, or tucking in behind where he, where he can't do anything. I think you want him to understand how he can help, you know, build that pressure. And when he once he feels the pressure go, then he can, he can go to town uh, um, on the opposition. So for me, I think that's the ones that are having success at the moment. South Africa were able to do that. You know, last World Cup, they got away with this. They're tied in turning sideways and going in. This this World Cup, they're able to shift right. They're able to shift left. They're able to drive straight through. They'd really evolved. And a couple of their props were a lot, a lot better than they were, even though they dominated in the previous World Cup. But they showed they were able to shift with the way that the game's being refereed. The the mindset side of things, I, I I completely agree with everything that that you just said. But the mindset mindset side of things is is really interesting to me because I think um, from my observations, I think if his scrum's important to the team, the head coach values the scrum, and the players value having a dominant scrum. That's a good part of the battle already won. How how have you have you ever been in a, a team where it you maybe walked in and it, the scrum wasn't that important. Yeah, yeah, and, and had to um, and had to change it. How, how did you? How did and you? Sometimes you sometimes you don't because you walk in as an assistant coach and you just want to jump on the back of you know, do what the head coach tells you. Jump in, get do your time and go. Um, yeah. I think I, uh, two thousand and four um, when I came when I was working with the Wallabies. Um, we had a very successful season that that domestic season. You know, we we were um, we were six from eight. Uh, you know, we beat the All Blacks and the Springboks um, at home, but but we should have beaten the Springboks away that year, and we we played really poorly in our last game. And and I always look back on that of going, I should have pushed harder around the scrum side of things. 
when I look back at that game, you know, it still ekes away at me now in terms of we became very, very efficient on we were 100%. You know, we had a very, very good back on. Our goal was just to, to we called it Kundabal, which was a Japanese sort of, you know, word that Eddie had come through with. I, I don't even know what the meaning was. But we wanted to be the best team at basically striking, channeling and being able to use ball around the park. Um, and we were very, very good at that. Um, where we struggled was more that because we were doing that all the time and we were 100% in most games, when the opposition held the ball in and um, and something happened, the scrum collapsed or whatever, we'd never showed any dominance. So we hadn't created a picture of dominance in the referee's mind. So often those 50-50s went against you. So I think getting to that point where you, you, you strike that balance, you know, I think for a while we went too far. In Australia, we actually said, like, you know, okay, we want to now try and get back to a point, you know, every, where everyone... Everyone in the world saying that we, you know, we just don't scrum aggressively. You know, we we just we basically scrum as a delivery platform. So you know, they're all talking to the referees saying that Australia is not scrumming dominantly. So um, you know, when then we went through a period around that 2015 where we really held the ball in. We you know we we try to create those pitches of dominance. We got some things there. We probably lost out in terms of some really good play opportunities off scrums in attack at the same time. But I think that what you, to your point, I think working with a coach and a coaching group to go, okay, where are the points in the game where we want to show that picture of dominance um, so that when something happens, we, um, we can actually, we can actually get rewarded for that. And then at other times we can actually go, okay, now, now here's the time where we really want to play. We've got their back row staying on the scrum. We've got them scrummaging. You know, they might be one down in the backs with a sin bin or something like that, and we've got to play. Um, so, you know, having that ability to, to do both, you know, I think one of the big things, creating a nice picture early, having identifying those situations where the opposition like to have the back row pressuring. So it can be when you're exiting from your own 22 and you know that their back row is going to be trying to fly at you, at your kickers. Um, you know, it's a one where a lot of teams use that dominance to to get a a penalty out of that scrum, be able to kick the ball out down and halfway on your feet, and and now you suddenly take defensive attack. The, the scrum's got to be a weapon in that sense. So, I think creating that mentality when the players understand that, um, as same the favourite thing I always have is you know we've got to fight till the ball's in flight, and everyone's got to have that attitude from one to eight. Uh, and if you don't do that. And every action you have in the scrum has an effect on the next one. So if you're lazy in your setup, it affects your bind. If you're lazy in your bind, it affects your hit. You know, if you, if you if you get a crap hit, you can't load your weight forward properly. So, you know, and, and then you don't have power and and you 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 know it affects everything else. So I like to have a, a system where the players look at each step and how it affects the next one. So, you know, we we, we perfect our setup. And the, and the front row do extra setups in the gym and and when they're together so we've got that done you know we do work on our bind so we and when we analysis when we do analysis it's the same thing we look up did we get our setup right did we get our bind right did we get our hit right did we load post hit did we power on where where did it break down and where do we fix things 
Yeah. Yeah. I love that, mate. I love that. <clears throat> Pardon me. Mate, just wanted to ask, uh, I just wanted to ask about the physical side of it and getting people conditioned for scrummaging. Obviously, yeah. there's a gym element at play and you've got guys like Angus Bell or Tanya Tupo who are very strong athletes. What about from an actual scrummaging conditioning side of things? How, how do you how do you get guys appropriately conditioned to scrummage uh, in a dominant manner? And, and what's what's the minimum effective dose? I guess, like what's what would your ideal week be? Two times, three times? H- how do you look at that? I think the um, the thing for me is I think you always want to have one hard scrum session a week. You can't always do it with injuries and stuff, but you want to have one hard one. And and my preference is that's live, you know. And if you're going Saturday to Saturday, that's probably your Tuesday type yep. day. Um, and and in that day, it can depend. the The volume can de- depend on the amount of um, load you've been able to create in the preseason. So what the players are conditioned to. Um, if you've got play, a lot of players who missed a lot of off-season returning from injuries, it's hard to load them. You know, they, they get through a game and they, they're they not recovering to the next one and, and they're trying to load. You, you might have injury history stuff. So it's probably not a – it's never a perfect scenario. You know, I guess if we looked at um, Waratahs, say, you know, when we had Tet with his sort of ankle issues, you know, mid-30s prop, um, could probably do cope with one – session a week and then you had to do that early enough for him to recover in time for the game you had Harry Johnson Holmes Achilles tear um you know belly with his with his toe so you got a load of guys that hadn't had a big load building into the season so you got to try and modify their load but then you got from a team perspective you got to get the load into the rest of the yeah. group so often you then you're bringing a little bit more scrum machine than you'd normally like into it my feel is you want the players to feel confident. So I always want at least one feed and, and delivery session during the week um, and and one live one and then probably one technical stuff where you can actually go through that, you know, problem solving. Let's look at what the opposition, mimic what the opposition we're doing this week might do. Are we all comfortable with, with where we're going to set up? You know, they might like to set close. You might have a team like the, you know, the Rebels or the or the Force that will occasionally change their bind pressure or or pull a little bit on the bind, um, and you've got to get used to getting really disciplined in your um, in your bind and setup process so you don't put any weight early um, and and fall into that trap of of getting pulled into an early engagement, but at the same time you don't end up sitting on your heels worrying about it and then they dominate the the engagement, you know, the other way. So I think it's getting players comfortable with those situations, um, allowing them to experience varying levels of pressure of the bind and what works and, um, you know, how you might change that during the game to adapt to the opposition. So, uh, yeah, to, I know that's a bit all over the place, but I guess off-season you're wanting when you're not playing, you're wanting two hard sessions a week. When you're into yep. the season, I would say the volume you're looking at is um, we end up doing sort of sets of three where you'd go just to bind uh, for a scrum, just to just to set and build yep. and load for one, and then a full delivery. Yep. Then break up, quickly fix anything, make any swaps around, go into another set of three. 
try and do, you know, three to four sets of those threes on a Tuesday um, on the back of a technical session. Yeah. And then on the Thursday, depending on the if it was a six or seven day week or or when your lead into your game was, if we wanted to do lives again there, it would just be really more we might do it in a team situation where you where you're feeding and delivering off that situation. Um I, I always like to do one where you go to field position. So we might go, okay, where are our where are our pinch points? Okay, we're gonna do we're now gonna scrum. Set a scrum on our 15, 15 meters in from touch on our left hand side inside our twenty two. We yeah. know the opposition is coming at you here. They can punch you into the sideline. What are we going to do here on this ball? How are we going to get it out? Let's practice that. You know, those just situational ones is is the second part. So, um, yeah, I guess there is a little bit of variation. For me, the key thing is trying to build that load into the season so you can cope with cope with being able to do lives in the week to learn as well as getting your game game um, I I appreciate that mate Uh, you're validating the scrum conditioning work I'm doing with the uni boys at the moment so thank you yeah exactly (laughs) and and the boys don't like it you know before Christmas getting in there and doing doing you know 30 second holds or five sets of buddy sink and shoves you know it's it's not the prettiest thing you ever you ever do and and the, the season's a long way away but for me, it's that consistency. You just build consistency. You build load. Um, I say the gym stuff's super important, um, but there's some stuff that just you got to get into that low. Um, you know, you got to get into that in that low position. Um, it's hard to mimic it. elsewhere. You can try and mimic it. You got to feel those rotational forces that are hard to hard to replicate, and um, and just learn how to cope with those and stay in position. And at the same time, keep your feet pushing into the ground and only move when you need to, you know, it's hard to replicate that in the gym as well. So, so all those things you've just got to do. Yeah. And if you don't got, do them, if you don't do them, they come back to haunt you in the season. I, I got a bit of a theory that I, I could teach my mum how to hold body shape on her own. But then if you add, you know, eight opposition, seven people behind you, you got to play rugby for 80 minutes, run the heat. It becomes very difficult to do. Yeah. So I think, couldn't agree well, with you more. Um, Mike Cron came up with a great word, and and I like to think of it is that um is a lot of players are you know massive in the gym. Then you get them one on one in a thing, and they're unbelievable in that. And you put them in an eight on eight, and something disappears out of it for some reason. And um, he used to call it social loafing. It's that that sort of comfort factor of having seven other people around you working that all of a sudden you go, well, someone else will do my job for me. So for me, that's why I always put that mentality, that mindset at number one is that we've all got to want to work and and not go, um, not say like I'm the front row, oh, you know, my head coach is an attacking coach, so he's only really looking at my, my run. So I'm going to gonna save a bit of energy around scrum time and, and uh, you know, charge around the field and do a couple of, couple of runs. And if, if it's... Or, or you might get a lock who's and gets a pretty pretty uncomfortable on the ears and the head in that second row position at times, and and uh, you know he's worrying about his line out and stuff. I think you just got to get that eight man mentality that everyone's got a role to do in the scrum, and we've all got to fight each scrum because it it creates a mindset on the opposition as well in the game if they're under pressure there. It creates a mindset of that you're playing okay in the referee's head. It gives Absolutely. you guys confidence. All those sort of things that add on to the rest of the game. 
And um, from an opposition point of view, if your scrum's getting dominated, that's all you really think about as a front row for the rest of the day and the rest of your game goes to shit from my experience. Exactly. You know, you see guys running around with their head down, you know, and you see that sometimes with hookers as well, you know, they have one bad throw or it's not even their fault. It's, you know, a bloke's missed his timing or missed his lift or they've jumped in a different spacing and that stuff's up the line out and those that hooker runs around shaking his head for the next five minutes and gets to the next scrum, hasn't focused on his balance or his bind and stuffs that up and, you know, loads onto the next thing and, and drops a ball, you know, the next carry and it just builds in. So I think, I think, yeah, that mindset's so, so important. Mate, I've got so many questions that I want to ask, but I'm very conscious of your time. So I've just got a couple more. Yeah. What, what, what is the difference between shoot shield and super rugby and how can how can guys like me who are trying to create the next generation of Waratahs and Wallabies, what can we do to to help that process? Yeah. Oh, look, I think it's a good point. So the difference probably between Shoot Shield and, and Super Rugby is the volume of core training the guys are getting. You know, you, you get a guy that's been training full-time in the, in the role for two or three years. He's... His cause, you know, there he's probably had a little bit more experience of scrummaging against harder people, but the the basics don't change at all. And I think definitely been guilty at it, and and um, myself as a coach and seen players believe it that when they get to that level that you don't need to work hard anymore. You've done the hard work, and and now it's about okay, let's let's play with this and let's do this and let's do that and. And they're not doing the non-negotiables each week of time under tension, you know, plane of movement, um, hit pattern of, of body shape and bind on the setup. Those things don't change anywhere. Um, I think what what sh- the shoot shield guys need is probably an overload early of of that stuff, of that experiential learning that they may not have had to to get them up to speed so the more that they can be in that position where they're getting slightly rotated and they they work out how to find shape from that they they work out if a if a player is trying to get them to move their inside foot you know by the way a tight head might hit drive slightly out at uh, one o'clock you know with the, trying to get out across underneath the loose head to get them to shift that inside foot to open up that that channel that seam between him and the hooker to get the feeling of okay, when that weight's coming, that how do I how do I just stay glued to my hooker and be patient and 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 let the loop let the tight head sort of stuff himself up by a changing angle. Those, those sort of things you only get by just chipping away at those things. So for me, I would say for everyone, it's the basics of of that stuff. You know, um, drilling drilling body position, drilling drilling. How do I get from my bind position? into my engagement, into a powerful position, you know, and build confidence in that. I think probably at that shoot shield level, you're going to do more building confidence where you go one-on-one, two-on-two, three-on-three, build, build, you know, okay, we've got into breaking point. Now we go back, yeah, fix it up, build them back up and just keep making those progressions. It might be quicker at super rugby level for the guys to do Okay, here's a real quick one. Now we get, now we're straight into five and five or eight on eight or six on six, and because they've already got that real base. Um, but you still got to tick it over 
yeah it, yeah it's, it's it's interesting to 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 me because i've seen guys go from the shoot shield to super rugby and then onto the wallabies and thrive but it's not that common it's not that common and i feel like um it, it it's important for guys in the shoot shield to have an understanding of what's required to create super rugby level front rowers second rowers so that we can do our part in that yeah. does that yeah. make sense yeah and i think the you look at that and you go what are the guys going to super rugby level for like what's what's got them picked at that level yeah um, and they're coming from different areas. So so they might be a young guy who's got promise and he, he gets into a super rugby squad and then there's injuries and because of the rules, you've got to push him through um, before he's re- really ready. And you see those guys, sometimes they don't really cope. Then you see guys like Shoddy and, and these guys that have come through a tough scrummaging club like Sullins and, and they've scrummed hard at training. You know, they've had a scrum mentality at training and they get down to the, the Brumbies um, they're comfortable in a situation because Palms is there and stuff, and then they they actually they can scrum well at that level straight away, in, in uh, and then you know go straight into a, a World Cup squad at the end of your, pretty much your first season. So you know you see guys like that be able to cope just because of the work that they've done at at that shoot shield level and yeah. below, and the, and the the situation they've been in. I think that that's the things. And and I guess people get a misunderstanding of the way Super Rugby works in that you, you're allowed to contract a certain amount of players. You've got to have a balance of, of guys for the future and guys for now. And, and sometimes you do get caught with, with pushing guys through before they're ready and they go on the field and people go, why are you picking that bloke? You know, from yeah. who's been good in club level and you're actually not allowed to. But the... But as well as part of their learning process, you don't want them having to learn it at super rugby level and you know get found out because often then that it takes them a year or two, you know, mentally to recover from that. But um, I think that the thing for me is that shoot shield, you know, you you want that competition at training, you want those tough sessions. Um, you then you find out the guys with the right mindset who can take the next step easily. Make a couple more. What what are some common mistakes that you see from young scrum coaches? Um, I think trying to uh, – I've sort of alluded to it a couple of times before, but I think trying to get get to, to introduce, like, massive tactics before the blokes can actually get their base right. Um, you know, I, would I you see- Would you even consider tactics before you get the base right? Even at shoot shield level, I think I would level? consider like the tactics of problem solving. You know, of saying, okay, um, you might have a prop that's not super strong yet, and you're getting him a little bit more extended on the bind, a little bit more lean. Um, you know, because you don't want him to get caught in that position that he's not strong at at ninety degrees. You know, because he hasn't done the work yet in the gym, so you might be compensating a little bit there. But then opposition recognise that and release weight on the bind or, or don't go across the space. So you got to you got to sort of have that. I guess it's probably not a tactic, but have that build that you know um, the IQ. That, that yeah that kit in his toolbox of how yeah. he copes with that. I would I would focus on those things. Once you can once you can get your feed your channel right and your and your shape right, then you start building in the tactics on the on the back of that. I think. Um, yeah, you do get a lot of coaches that are very very good tactically in their own time, 
and they want to, you know, they get a coaching position and they want to go in and go, okay, I want to show the players all the stuff that I can do, you know, straight away. Yeah. You got to, you got to put that in the, you got to put that ego in the, you know, in the back shelf and go, okay, I've got to, I've got to find out what these blokes can do mentally, what they can do, build, build that base. And then once I've got a really good base, you can do anything off the back of it. You, you, you talk, Talk briefly about uh, the process or the system that you use. I think that's yeah. a probably probably a good thing to to maybe finish the podcast on, just for young scrum coaches to understand the importance of how to get everyone in the scrum on the same page. Could you yeah. could you just maybe go into a, a little bit more detail about the system and why that's important? Yeah, I guess if I was looking at where I want to finish up on the engagement. So if I were, if I start there as a starting point and go, um, if if I'm looking sideways at a scrum, you know I want that basically that um, that thigh angle when we hit the opposition to be at that roughly that one o'clock, you know if you're looking at a clock face, yeah. Um, I want that the studs those front six studs buried into the ground. I want a flat line between the hip and the shoulder. Um, so if I go, okay, if that's where I want to get to, what what's my system to get there? Um, obviously, we've got the the break foot law with the hooker now. But to get to that point with the front rowers, I want them to be able to be comfortable at being at a 12 o'clock thigh angle when they, when they get the bind. Yeah. Um, so to start that, I want to make sure that there's some real basic principles that hips, hips, shoulders, square facing the opposition all the time. So we've got that power position. Um, that's um, from that point of view, we've, we're basically, um, when we get into our crouch position, that that our knee is in front of our toe. So we're not yeah. sitting back on our on our heel. So that's a real simple thing. So we're looking at our setup um, there. Um, there's various ways of setup. You know, do, does your hooker bind to your loose head or does your hooker bind to your tight head first and, and how does that affect the scrum? But the, the key thing for me is I don't want I don't want the, the hooker binding to the loose head and then moving away from him and dragging the loose head, you know, shoulders sideways and leaving his hips across. So I want the loose head to be nice and feel nice and square. Yeah. So anything that's – those little things about setup is super important. So, so getting that – knee hip angle right on the setup is super important for me and that balance um and getting that connection when we start our bind process getting that back five shoulder connection that so their ear and the point of their shoulders are connected to the blokes in front of them and they're working through them that's the key thing for me then 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 the second bit is of the process is how do we bind to the opposition so that we don't compromise ourselves so we don't the tight end doesn't lift his right shoulder um, that the loose head doesn't get twisted um, and and release the weight on that inside of his body and, and lose that connection to his hooker. So we just get that bind process right. Um, and then from that point, you know, how are we how are we engaging from that point? So so what's our process of of sinking into our feet and driving our chest through so we achieve that one o'clock angle um, there? Once we can get that, then we talk about. I know they talk about not pushing before the ball comes in, but we've got to we've got to load pressure on the opposition to maintain a strong body position. And yeah. and my key, I try to always say to players, if if you 
if you look through at the opposition's feet all the time and you're basically trying to touch your sternum onto their, their toes, you're going to be pushing in the right direction. If you, you're driving your chest through in that, that shape there, so you're loading there, then how do we create power? So we don't just sink our knees and our shoulders lift. You know, we, we drive our chest through and, and, and we open our knees slightly so our hips turn on to get that power through. And then at what point do we move our feet? So you get a lot of guys who want to move their feet as soon as they engage because they're trying to get comfortable or trying to create movement in the scrum. But but your movement's always kind of come through your chest and your hips. And as soon as you feel that movement and you feel your studs start to lift out of the ground, then you know you've got to move your feet before you get up onto the onto the real nose of your toes and your pancake out. So um, And there's a point of no return with that where you get too far with your locks pressure on and behind you that any any step you make is going to be too long you're going to rotate and you're going to you're going to lose your feet so for me it's that it's it's get the principles of the setup get the principles of the bind principles of the hit how you load how you power through and how you chase um just that that little those little steps um for me are, are the key to scrummaging and if i'm a coach i want to I want to stand beside the scrum and go, okay, where's our weight on that on that setup? How are we looking? Um, when we get into our crouch, are we at a thighs of 12? Have we got a nice strong bind position on that bind? You know, do we do we shift back or do we maintain our balance? Um, to the do the back five put that slight connection on at the right time? Um, so that when we engage, we're, we're engaging as eight. When we hit, I always like to say to the players, when you engage, you should feel like the studs are pushing through the base of your boots, not not that, you, not that you've come up onto your toes. So if you've got that feeling, you know, that you feel there when, when you engage that we call it, it's hard to describe the players, but I like to call it a heavy hit. But yeah. you hit, when you hit it, feel the opposition feels like, geez, that's a heavy scrum. You know, not not necessarily that you've dived across the space and beaten them up to that space, but geez, they feel heavy. Yeah. And it's that, you know, you've got your feet in the ground, you're loaded up and all the weight's on that that you're nice and stable. Oh. Mate, there's there's some really good stuff in that. And I I uh, as I've gotten into coaching and traveling around and going to do juniors and local clubs and I think that aspect of getting all eight on the same page is probably something we could do a lot better in this country. Yeah. From I think, maybe um, below the professional level. Yeah. I know this is probably a weird thing to say, but but I had a coach um, do, a, do a session with us when I was quite young and um, it was a timing session. And so I've seen Mike Cron do all these little exercises around timing and, you know, with his, um, little hand exercises and showing that that often often when you just rely on a call system and everything or you don't call um, that players do things in different times. Um, one of the best sessions I've had in terms of progressing stuff is basically getting players into a scrum machine and then having them the back five close their eyes and on the call just feel the movement of the of the front rows in front of them and just work through on that feel of that movement and just do that repetitions of that. Um, you know, hard to do the eyes closed in, in live sessions because there's too many other variations, but but just you actually often get a good result of 
of getting players working in timing together and doing the same things at the same time when you take one of those sensors out of it. Um, and you can see, you often look, will look as a coach and you look at the side of the scrum, you'll see uh, probably uh, sometimes your hardest working lock is just getting something slightly wrong. He might be sinking his knees and driving his shoulders up and he's actually lifting his tight heads, you know, base out of the ground and driving up him up onto his toes and lifting his hips higher than his shoulders and actually stuffing his own front row up. So yeah. so just seeing that those guys are actually working with each other and, and helping each other out is super important. Mate, fantastic. A couple of rapid fire ones for you, mate, and then I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll let you get back to your farm. And, You're right, mate. Uh, do you have any books, documentaries, podcasts, anything that you'd recommend that people listen to, watch, even even just for entertainment? Yeah, look, I mean, funny enough for me, the podcast I'm listening to at the moment has got nothing to do with rugby. It's it's uh it's called Hosting with Heart. It's about it's about basically running a you know a place where you want people to come in and have a good experience. Yeah. Um, you know, for me that's a we run uh, books. The last book I, I read actually was a really interesting one. I had the fascination about coaches that last a long time and 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 have that don't just be successful once and rely on that. They've just got this internal drive and, and basically reading a book called the education or read a book called the education of a coach, a Bill mm-hmm. Belichick one, you know, one of these NFL ones. And there's a lot of typical NFL bullshit, you know, yeah. talk up in, in it. But the background of it is just this sheer doggedness of a bloke to become the best at his craft, you know, to learn, just keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. And, and when he got good, he just went, oh, well, that's good, but I now want to do this and I now want to do that. And um, it took me a long time in my rugby career to to create that mentality. And it actually took missing out on a team uh, in the year of the World Cup. So I'd had a good year in 98, started 99. Um, Ginge, Jeff Miller sat me down and, and I wasn't getting picked in the first test. And I said, oh, you know, why? And he said, oh, you, I, I got you to write down what you're – ambition was and you said I wanted to be respected you know I wasn't the biggest prop in the world you know whatever but I just wanted to be respected by the opposition and and you know by my teammates and whatever and he said you never mentioned about wanting to be the best and I was worried about that and he said I want you to go away and think about wanting to be the best I'm I'm worried that you're the potentially the best scrummager in Australia but you're satisfied now you're part of the team and you just want it and it hurt for three or four tests when I wasn't playing, but but it changed my, the way I was thinking about it. And, and it's something that I've always thought about since then of of never sort of sitting on your heels and going, okay, I'm, I've done that now. I've always wanted to try and move forward and, and get better at something and and uh, and and sort of look for not not trying to reinvent the wheel all the time, but but look at okay, what what is what's this guy doing? What this one's person's doing that's that's working well and and what do we take out of that to to actually um, try and um, make ourselves better? That's fantastic coaching, by the way. Oh well, it, it, it's sort of the key to it, and that's what this. That's why I wanted to read this guy's article because it was just that all the time of just not living, not not never being satisfied with where you're at, of, of really trying to push along. And I think that for me is the thing. And, and you've always got to go back, focus on the basics, and then. Yeah. And then uh, you know, not be satisfied around that that side of things. Who's the best prop you ever played against? 
Ollie Brown was the best, probably, you know, he was an all-black um, tight head. I was very uncomfortable. I was playing, te- I was playing Lucid, which I hadn't played a lot of in, in test matches, but he was just a guy that was ahead of his time. Like, he could scrum an inch off the ground. You know, you release pre- pressure on him and hope he's going to collapse. And and uh, it was in the days where your knee could touch, but as, as long as you fought and got straight back off the ground, you, you're all right. And, uh, and you think, oh, well, I've... I've put him to deck, you know, it's all right, I've survived this one, and he'd just lift you back up and just keep motoring on. And, uh, yeah, he was he was unbelievably good. Um, I think then then learning how to cope with the, the big guys, you know, I alluded to earlier, you play in South Africa, you got a massive pack, you got eight blokes over 120 kilos and, you know, enormous weight and, and just the real challenge of learning how to nullify or, or um, beat them at scrum time. Um, was was for me a real joy um, around playing the game. What makes a good coach? Um, I think someone that's in it for the right reasons. Um, uh, I've never wanted to be a head coach, so I really can't talk from that point of view. You know, you've got to be pretty bulletproof um, Mentally and, and have a bit of a skin of armour, you know, be able to let things wash over you all the time around that. For me, looking at my where I coach, you know, the majority of my time as assistant coach, it's it's getting joy out of seeing people improve um, and learn. That's that's the great thing I see. If, if I work with a young player and then he gets out on the field, you know, has a couple of games where he might really struggle and then you see something click and you see the joy and the result of of that effort, that for me is just there's nothing better than than yeah. seeing that, and that's what I love about coaching, um, and that's where where I get the joy out of coaching, and I think that's where I'll never be able to really let that go at, at any level, um, you know, that just that that feeling of doing that. I, I say, head coach bit, people are going to have that, you know, the the, the whole idea of of that twenty four hours a day, where we're often not. Coaching, you do you're doing all all the other things, bar coaching, dealing with dealing with you know personalities, dealing with with people getting over selections, dealing with all the other stuff that goes media, board and members, media and, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Um, they can have that and, and good on them, you know. They get the big bickies for doing for doing that yeah. stuff, but uh, for me, it's all about that. If, if I can help someone do do that and, and get a little bit better, and it, if it's not. If I'm not doing that, I always like to go back and go, why? What did I do wrong? And often it'll be something that I've done and I've realised that I've, I've just talked at them, you know, and, and not actually not actually gone in. And I'm still sort of able to get in there and feel that pressure and, and get, you know, put my head in there as long as there's not too many players behind them, um, which is always nice, that feeling of that. And, um, you know, and you get to feel when, when, the, when they release pressure, when they're and be able to feedback as soon as you feel that they've got you in something you go that's that's the feeling there you know do that again do that again and and you're rewarding that the other thing i guess if i'm going to leave uh the coaching bit of one thing is that um i'm technically technologically pretty challenged um my goal as a coach and i and i try to get the players to do it is every time you do something good at training. So if you're being filmed at training or in a game and and you do something really good, clip that. I used to sit down with players at super rugby level and some of the players would come in and I'd go, how was the game? And they'd have six points. 
and every one of them was showing me how shit a shit thing that they did, you know, and, yeah. and a mistake that they made. And I said, oh, what about these five or six scrums here where you were really good? Oh, I'm not worried about them. I'm worried about these. And I, my feedback to them was, no, forget those ones. Go and watch over and over and over again the six times you did it perfectly and drill that in your head and remember that feeling of that. And if you if you could put together a five-minute video that you watch, you know, on the day of every game of you just doing things well, you know, clean out, ball carry, tackle thing, build your ego up and just yeah. watch yourself in those motor patterns of doing things correctly. Forget the other stuff. The other stuff is just beating you up. That's such um, great advice. Such great advice, mate. Like I've, I've noticed with the guys I'm coaching at the moment, you go, what do you think of that? Put it out to them. It's almost always – uh, things that they could do better or negative yeah. rather than going, well, no, we got the line out drill. That was pretty good. You know, the initial yeah. punch was good. Oh, that more was, you know, they don't tend to focus on the good. And I, I think getting the balance between going, geez, I did that well, but I could do that better is really I important. think that's what they expect to, that they're expecting Yeah, is, is that, is like they're expecting you that you want to hear what they've done wrong and what you can help them with. With, I think the um, I think the more they can go without ignoring it, you know, they go okay. I need to. I'm inconsistent. I had some crap ones there. I've got to get that out of me. Um, I thought I did these ones well. Yeah. And you go, yep, yeah, you did those ones well. Let's concentrate on those. Let's get more of those and less of those, and let's work on the reason that one that was inconsistent or you didn't cope with that. Let's work on getting that right and focus on that. And and then that goes to the wayside. I think you do get those guys that never admit that they've done any, anything wrong. You get the other ones, you know, yeah. that, that <laughs> it's everyone else's fault. So you don't want everyone doing that. It's more, it's more getting them to say, yeah, I, I made some mistakes. Yeah, I got that wrong. But let's now focus on really focusing on why what works well and what does right and how we do that right and, and let's drill that drill that goodness and think about that. So you get in the next game and and you're wanting to go into the game and dominate. You're not going in there going, oh, I hope I don't move my foot. If you go in there going, I hope I don't move my right foot on the engagement, you know, or whatever. And then all of a sudden you see your tight head, that's in his head and he's as he's as he's hitting, he's got he's moving that right foot and it's, you know, he's he's got it off the ground at the point of contact. And uh, or immediately after contact, he's shifting it back and in, and he's lost his base because he's been thinking about that the whole week. Yeah. Um, so I think that's yeah, it's a hard mentality to get get, but I think if we, if we drill those things in, um, that feeling of doing things well is, is the real key. Mate, I, I feel like I could talk scrums with you for hours, and and maybe we'll do a number two at some point. But I've got one final question for you. Yeah. What advice would you give eighteen-year-old Andrew Blades? It's a, it's a, it's a great one. Um, I think what I would give myself is you retire for a long time. Um, you know, you get a small window at playing this amazing game with great mates, um, amazing experiences. So you know, when you train, train consistently. Um, Work on the things that are going to make a difference for you. Um, don't shy away from them. Um, I think if I look back on my own career, 
I, the one thing I would regret at that was that um, there were better guys carrying the ball than me and the team. And often, you know, if I had the opportunity to carry, I'd tip onto the boat that was better or do rather than actually go, actually, if I don't go and do that 20 times a day, work on my footwork into contact, work on that, that's my game going to the next level. Um, I think that's probably the things that I look at is where, where could I become, you know, Australia's best tight at the time earlier? Where I, where could I become a better prop from a worldwide point of view? So if I was talking to myself, I'd go, you know, don't shy away from it. Work on that ball carry. Uh, you know, um, work on the things you're not good at at a scrum point of view. I would, this is a weird thing to say, but I was, I'm left-handed, so I was very left side focused on my scrummaging, which meant that because I was a bit more coordinated on my left side, I spent a lot of my time burying my left shoulder into that scene. And yeah. I let loose head sort of almost come at me because I was weaker on that right side. Um, then I see a lot of, lot of um, tight heads now who are right. So they spent a whole time cr- cranking with their right arm and doing all this stuff there. And, they put so much pressure on themselves because they've got two blokes underneath them and working at them the whole time. And, you know, I'd say to them, okay, let's let's use that strength you've got on your right side, but let's really develop that coordination of that left side of your chest and what you do with that to to create those, to let you break the seam of that scrum, um, let you work into that space where you where you get back to a one-on-one and or, or you can, you know, create that, that um, seam between the loose head and the hooker. So... So I think not shying away from the things that that um, that are going to make you a better better player is super super important. And if I yeah if I was going to go back and start from scratch, I said do a lot of the things the same. You know, like work hard in the gym, um, probably get staff the piss a little bit more, uh, the drink a little bit more than than I did. But I think the uh, the that was probably the thing that held me back a lot was those other parts of the game that that I just went, oh, well, I'm going to become a really, really, really good scrummager technically, um, and I won't worry too much about that because I'm not good at it. I think I'd, I'd go back and I'd, I'd try and be better in those areas. Lazy, I'm so grateful for your time, mate. Thank you very much. I enjoyed the hell out of this. I I absolutely took some, some really good things that I'm going to use in my own coaching out of this, and I think other people will as well, mate. So thank you very much. Thanks, Joe. Good on you, mate.